Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame But wholly trust in Jesus' name is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ Cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. When darkness seems to hide His face.
the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain that could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness Your loving kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul The work is finished The end is written Jesus Christ, my living hope Who could imagine So great a mercy What heart could fathom this boundless grace the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame the cross has spoken I am forgiven the King of Kings calls me his own beautiful Saviour I'm yours forever, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion Declare the grave has no claim on me. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Yours is the victory. Oh, hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Oh God, you are my living hope. 
There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. Where all the Like a flood comes flowing down at the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in all of you, I'm in all of you. Where your love ran red and my sin washed white. church. Just wanted to get into the announcements this morning. Uh, first up is that our cup and chat that has been on a Thursday, we're actually moving that to a Wednesday morning. So that will still be at 10.30am here at the church. And for those that would like to come earlier than that, we will also be holding prayer uh, from 10am. So if you'd like to come and pray for our church, pray for our people, pray for our town, pray for, for what God has laid on your heart with others, then we'll be doing that at 10 and then at 10.30 
uh, we'll be having a cup and a chat here at the church for those that would like to uh, enjoy the company of some other people. So uh, come for one, come for both, it's, it's up to you, but I'd love to have you here. Also, don't forget that small groups uh, are recommencing here at the church. So speak with your small group leaders for more information about that. And I just encourage you, if you're part of a small group, then come when your small group is on. Because it's really important that we not only invest into our spiritual lives and learn more about Jesus, but you also invest into lives and encourage those around us that are journeying with Jesus too. Uh, so I'd encourage you, get in contact with your small group leader and make sure that you get along to your small group when it is on. Uh, also, midweek worship, just want you know, it won't be occurring this month. So we've just had some advice we're trying to work through about DHHS guidelines for, for singing. Um, so once we work through that, we'll let you know more. But at the moment, we have postponed midweek worship this month. Hopefully, we'll be able to get something together and have a nice um, Christmas carols type of event in December. We're really looking forward to, to doing that. Uh, so I'd encourage you all to continue to be praying for our state and federal leaders and uh, that we would be able to continue to have some of these great testing results we've had uh, earlier in this week um, and that uh, might release some of the pressure that I'm sure that we are all feeling. And so I just want to pray for you now, particularly those who are struggling uh, with uh, what's going on right now. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you and I acknowledge that so many of us are, are struggling with, with what's going on right now. So many of us are, are hurting and so many of us have this underlying sense of, of unease and, and anger and frustration. And every time we have a conversation with somebody and you know, say, how are you going? And Lord, it's so hard not to talk about the government and all the lockdowns and all those sorts of things going on. But Lord, I pray that you would bring a fresh vitality to our minds and spirits and bodies and souls. And that, Lord, we would be able to lift ourselves above what is our current circumstances. And that, Lord, we would never lose sight of who you are and of your goodness to us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's get into our sermon. If you've got your Bibles, open them up with me to chapter 8 of Judges. And here we are concluding the account of Gideon. And we will see the effects on Gideon and Israel of taking offence, compromise, seeking revenge, and of a divided heart. We see glimpses and moments of greatness in Gideon. We see moments where he's faithful to God and, and unwavering in his commitment to the Lord's work. But we also see a, a conflicted man doing his best, but so, so often coming up short. I think Gideon is a person that so many of us would feel an affinity with. We too have had, had those moments of great faithfulness and an unwavering commitment to the Lord and his work. We have seen great victories won for Christ in our lives and in our, the lives of others. But we too have suffered from the effects of sin, taking offence, compromising on our convictions, being vengeful and having a divided heart. So what we learn from Gideon in large part is what we can also learn from our own stories. God is gracious always. Yet sometimes we just seem to mess it up 
And the first way we can mess it up is when we take offence. Read with me Judges chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have, I, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, what I've been able to do in comparison with you. Their, then their anger against him subsided when he said this. These men of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, complain to Gideon and they get really offended uh, that they were not invited to be part of the battle and to be involved in this great victory that Gideon had won. See, Gideon had not invited them when he invited Manasseh, Asher, Zebulon, Naphtali, most likely at the Lord's direction, since he, had not, he didn't need more soldiers. But the men of Ephraim had taken this omission as an insult. They'd taken offence. And so Gideon responds quite diplomatically and satisfied the Ephraimites with a a clever compliment. The gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim refers to the lives and spoils the Ephraimites took from the fleeing Midianites. And the harvest of Abizah refers to the Midianites' that Gideon and his 300 men had defeated and slain. And in this sense, the Ephraimites' victory was better and greater, furthermore, in that they had killed two top Midianite commanders, Oreb and Zeb. So that actually won a greater victory than Gideon's initial one. But it's significant, however, that Gideon based his appeal on psychology rather than theology. He responded by stoking their egos rather than pointing to God's hand at work. Why did Gideon make no reference to God's direction of him or or God's provision of victory? Having participated in a great deliverance, Gideon seems to have already begun to exclude the victor from his own victory. He seems to already be excluding God from his thinking. When people come to us having been offended, we so often react to their accusations on on the human level, responding with psychology rather than on the spiritual level, responding with theology. We're so quickly wrapped up in ourselves and our own thinking and, and intellect about the situation as we react that we forget the spiritual element of our situation. This is one of the traps of offence. We often get defensive and react rather than thoughtfully processing the situation and taking the time to discern what is going on spiritually as well. This is what offence does. It moves us away from truth and it engages instead our emotions which so easily betray us. Gideon shows some wisdom in being able to calm them down with flattery and by by stoking their egos, but he also shows us in his approach that it is flawed as he completely omits 
God's hand at work. You know, something seems to have happened to the character of our hero, Gideon. You see, in chapters 6 to 7, we've witnessed his transformation from from fear to faith, from a fearful private, private citizen to a fearless agent of God willing to take on the enemy against all odds, not to mention a sensitive diplomat. But the portrait of the man the author paints in in chapter 8 creates a radically different impression of Gideon, which leads us to the second way that we can mess it up, compromise. We pick this up in verse 4. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmanna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and the breers. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Succoth and Penuel were two towns that stood on the east side of the Jordan beside the Jabbok River. The residents of these villages lived closer to the Midianites than most of the Israelites did. And they may have made an alliance with them, compromising from the convictions as a nation of Israel. And it's understandable they didn't want to jeopardise their security by assisting Gideon, whom they thought of as much weaker than their Midianite neighbours. Denying Gideon and his men bread is not only an expression of cowardice or fear of the vengeance which the Midianites might take when they returned upon those who had supported Gideon and his host, but it also shows contempt of the small force with which Gideon had as if it were going to be impossible for him to accomplish anything at all against this mighty foe. And in this contempt, they manifested their utter lack of confidence in God. These people had compromised so much and were living mostly peaceful existences subservient to their Midianite neighbours, that when God's judge comes to them asking for food, they think it is laughable that such a small number of men could have any chance of victory against the might of the Midianites, even though only a much smaller number remained. Those that remained were guarding the Midianite kings, and were no doubt highly trained soldiers. And so the people of Succoth and Penuel, they give Gideon no chance. And in doing so, reveal how much they had given over to compromise with the Midianites and how little regard they had for God. Verse 10. Now Zeba and Zamana were in Kakor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. 
And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbahar and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zebar and Zalmanah fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zebar and Zalmanah, and he threw all the army into panic. Having been denied provisions by these two Israelite towns, Gideon, he continued to to pursue the remaining 15,000 Midianite soldiers southeast. When he caught up with them, he attacked them by surprise, for they felt secure. You know, the Midianites had not expected Gideon to pursue them so far. 20 miles east of the Jordan River and at least 50 miles southeast from the Harrod Springs. The Israelites had never pursued them before when they'd conducted their yearly raids and so they thought they were home free. Gideon routed the remnant of the Midianite alliance and captured the two kings of Midian whose names are Zeba, which means victim, and Zalmana, which means protection refused. These are most likely the nicknames that the Israelites and the writer of Judges gave them. And what we see on display is pure, prideful self-confidence. Gideon was seeking the highest honour and greatest glory in the battle. Now, God here comes in third place by defeating the Midianites. The Ephraimites come in second place by killing the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. But Gideon was planning to, to skim off the creme de la creme of greatest value, first place, by killing the Midianite kings, Zeba and Zamana. You know, Gideon too compromises from what he knows is the truth. And instead of winning great victory for God's glory and the good of the nation of Israel, he inserts his own glory front and center. So we see the beginning of a trend of self-interest and revenge amongst these later judges. The once timid Gideon had now become a violent tyrant and instigates the first time in Judges military action against fellow Israelites, a motif that will only grow worse as the book progresses. Verse 13. Then Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres. And he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmanna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, he took the thorns of the wilderness and breeze, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Gideon dishes out a severe punishment of the men of these towns, and it was deserved and just. They had selfishly refused to assist God's appointed judge in his holy war for God's glory and his people's good. They'd also shown contempt for and insulted the soldiers whom God had honoured with supernatural victory. And it was in fact Gideon's duty as a judge in Israel to punish these compromising 
and selfish cities. The severity of his punishment doubtlessly impressed the other Israelites with the seriousness of their offence. However, we cannot miss the contrast between Gideon's impatience and ruthlessness with his fellow Israelites and God's long-suffering patience and grace with his people. Gideon's behaviour could be justified if Penuel were a Canaanite city, but these were fellow Israelites. His character had been transformed again. He acted like a general out of control, no longer bound by rules of civility, let alone national loyalty. This judge seems to have not even a hint of a guilty conscience about torturing or killing those Israelites who have doubts in him, which is a sharp contrast to the treatment he received from God when Gideon was in doubt. God is characterised by grace and forgiveness, but Gideon displays what is the third way we can mess it up, revenge. Verse 18. Then he said to Zebar and Zamana, Where are the men who you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you would save them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jetha, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmanah said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Gideon took his prisoners back to Ophrah, where the events of this passage evidently take place. The two Midianite kings, now in Gideon's custody, had apparently killed Gideon's brothers sometime before the recent battle, perhaps during one of the Midianites' previous raids. It seems that Gideon had been unable to avenge his brothers' deaths before now, due most likely to the Midianites' military superiority. Now Gideon had the upper hand. He could get his revenge. From these accounts, we see that Gideon was apparently a physically impressive person. And the Midianite king said Gideon's brothers resembled him and that each one looked like a son of a king. The family resemblance must have been strong as these Midianite kings had murdered Gideon's brothers and could obviously see the resemblance there. They tried flattering Gideon too, but it, it doesn't work for them. Gideon attempts to have his son, who is still a young man, Jether, execute the Midianite kings. You see, it was a great disgrace to die at the hand of a woman or a youth in the ancient Near East. Therefore, Gideon's intent was not to only just punish the kings, but to humiliate them in their death as well for their treatment of his brothers. However, 
Gideon's young son was not ready for this adult work and so Gideon killed them himself. And with the execution of Zeba and Zalmanah and the destruction of their army, Midian's domination of Israel ended. Though the seven years of this oppression were not as long as some of Israel's other periods of discipline, these years evidently constituted constituted an unusually oppressive subjugation. Gideon, he gets revenge for his own family and in large part revenge for the nation of Israel too. And he takes the valuable gold and silver ornaments from the camels as spoils of victory. He gets revenge. But I'm reminded of many passages of Scripture that teach us that that is in fact the role of the Lord and not for us to seek. Romans 12, 9, for example, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for as it is written... And then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32:35, "Vengeance is mine, I will repay," says the Lord. And so by seeking revenge, Gideon is breaking Mosaic law. Now when we are hurt, dreams of vengeance come so easily. We've all been there, haven't we? I mean, how many ways have you dreamt up of how to get back and get even? You know, how to get revenge on someone who has, who has hurt you. But the clear will of the Lord is to let him deal with it. Give it to God and let him avenge us. Because if we don't, we mess it up by trying to get revenge ourselves. Who do we think we are to even think that we could do that justly? But God can. And so we should release those people, those past hurts and that pain to God and trust that he will deal justly with them. Gideon then displays the fourth way that we can mess it up with a divided heart. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. The supernatural victory God had given his people elevated Gideon into national recognition. 
some of the men of Israel even invited Gideon to be their king and to begin a dynasty of rulers. But Gideon wisely refused their flattering offer. But he failed to give credit to God for the victory. Now God had made provision for an Israelite king in the Mosaic law. But evidently, Gideon believed Israel was better off under the current system and the current arrangement of judgeships, whereby God, Israel's true king, would raise up deliveries like himself when he saw fit. This was a wise decision and it was in harmony with God's will. Yet Gideon's subsequent decision contradicted his words. He led Israel back into idolatry. From the very place out of which he had previously led them. Rather than following Moses as his role model, who though hesitant at first had proved faithful, Gideon followed the example of Aaron, who requested the people's jewellery to make an idol. Gideon likely perceived in his popular appreciation by the Israelites an opportunity to do something that he may uh, have believed would be a help to his people. Unfortunately, it became a spiritual snare to them. He decided to make an ephod, which is a priestly garment covered in gold and jewels, like a, like a, a breastplate. And in so doing, Gideon reveals his divided heart. He does so well in refusing the establishment of a monarchy which would set himself up as king over Israel noting that God is Israel's king, which is true. But he fails so poorly by recommitting the sins of the past, by making an object out of gold, 1,700 shekels minimum, which today's equivalent at today's gold price would be $1.6 million worth of gold in this garment. And this ephod, it becomes an idol to Gideon and all his family as they worship the idol instead of God. Verse 29. Jeroboam, that is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons by his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in the good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And such is the result of a divided heart. It leads to no good. Having a divided heart where in one moment we honour the will of God and do right before him, yet in the next moment we dishonour God by replacing him with something else, that's what idolatry is and it leads to no good. We mess it up. Gideon displays for us such confidence in the will of God on one hand, yet such poor judgment and returning to his failed ways on the other. Now, the antidote for a divided heart is to stand up in the confidence of our Saviour. 
Stand up against the enticement of returning to what we once knew and did. Stand up against the comfort of our past. Stand up against falling back into our old patterns. And instead, stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has set us free. Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has given us life. Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has redeemed us. Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has set us apart. Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has called us according to His glory and grace. Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has set us on the right path. Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has paid the penalty for our sins. Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has given His life for ours. Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour who has bought us with a price that we could not pay. And so my challenge for us is this. Where we are failing like Gideon, stand up and remain faithful to the Lord. What are you taking offence at? Employ the grace of God instead. What areas are you compromising? Stand up strong in your convictions. Where are you seeking revenge? Hand it over to the Lord instead. And where do you have a divided heart? Stand up in the confidence of our Saviour. Let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you are a mighty God. You have saved us and delivered us from a life of sin and death. And I pray that you would give us the conviction of spirit to stand up in that reality and to stand against the temptations of sin and a divided heart. Lord, I pray that where it comes to that natural human response of wanting revenge, that Lord, we would instead give that person, give that hurt, give that pain over to you. That, Lord, you would indeed avenge us justly. And Lord, where we are compromising, Lord, give us the, the conviction to stand up against that compromise and to instead stand in confidence in you. And Lord, if we are taking offence at what someone has said or done, or Lord, I just ask that you would help us to employ the grace of God instead to move past the offence, to not take on the offence and let that become a snare that so easily entraps us and that distracts us from accomplishing your plans and purposes in our life. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to stand up in the confidence of our Saviour and to walk boldly in confidence in who you are as our God. Amen. Let's sing.
the sun I believe in the Holy Spirit Our God is three in one I believe in the resurrection That we will rise again For I believe in the church for another day. I was so pleased that you could join with us to watch the service today. Um, particularly those at church, lovely to see you. And uh, remember, you too can book in for Church at Home at Church. Uh, use the link or just send me a text or give me a call or something and uh, I can get you booked in. Um, remember also QR codes when you come into church. So please, if you don't have a QR code reader on your phone, just download one of the free apps that you can get 
it'll take you to a web page where you just enter your name and a phone number. Um, I'm the only one that can see that information through privacy policies um, and that's mainly for contact tracing that in the event that something happens, I can just quickly send that off and send everyone that was here on that day a text message um, letting you know to go get tested, etc. But chances of that are very, very low. Uh, very low risk and so I'd encourage you try and be as normal as possible and to think as normally as possible You know, maybe set a yourself a challenge as I'm going to set myself a challenge this week When I'm in conversation with people don't mention Dan Andrews Don't mention the failure of the government. Don't mention the challenges Just find something positive and find something interesting to talk and to, to, to chat about and uh, to, to look for the positives that we can uh, and try and move past these negatives. It's great, you know that our borders are looking like they're gonna be opening soon. And so, uh, you know, normal-ish life is on, its, on the doorstep. We're on the precipice. So I'd encourage you to stay positive and really encourage you uh, come along on a Wednesday for, for prayer at 10 and at 10.30 we've got our cuppa and a chat. Um, get along to a small group, um, you know, be part of what you can and I uh, just really ask that uh, God would bless you this week. See you later.